I guess it's important to use that uh, word <clears throat> as an adjective, though it tends to make me nervous when, when Christian is used as an adjective. It usually puts me on the defensive. And it usually is a redundancy, like to describe somebody as a Christian person is redundant. I mean, if you're really a person, you, you are Christian. A Christian business, that makes me real nervous. <laughs> That's known as an oxymoron. <clears throat> so to talk about Christian love uh, may be a redundancy. I would be careful of using Christian as an adjective. It tends to mean something exclusive. When you use Christian as an adjective, it means you're probably cutting somebody out or defining yourself in relationship to something that you're not. It's okay to do that. I just want you to be aware of it. As I'm fond of saying, um... Uh, Quoting C.G. Jung, awareness uh, may be the greatest gift and unawareness the greatest sin. I think Jesus was finally interested in that, and he said, I'm really not interested in your behavior because behavior tells us very little. Behavior is simply tips of icebergs. We don't really know what's going on under the water. I'm interested in your heart, your motive, your motivation, and more so than I am in your behavior. Uh, you can go to church every Sunday and follow all of the laws from your youth and yet not be faithful. And I'm quite confident that not all the Christians are in churches. So I was asked to speak about love, and I will. <clears throat> As you know, the Greeks had more words for love and different understandings of love than we. I was glad to see William Sapphire this morning on language in the New York Times magazine do the etymology of the word love because in the Anglo-Saxon derivative, it's not from the Latin amour, but it's from the Saxon, which is the same root that we get libido and lust. Tells you a lot about the Western understanding of love. I'm neither against libido nor lust. I'm against calling that love. It's just one form of love, probably best lumped under the category by the Greeks as eros. Eros, in my definition, is one kind of love. We'll discuss three or four kinds of love today. Uh, then we will get to what's known as love. 
Christian love, redundancy notwithstanding. Eros is the desire of a subject for an object. Nothing wrong with that kind of love. As a matter of fact, it's a very creative kind of love. It is a strong desire. It's a desire that is strong as a spirit. It will intoxicate. It will infatuate. The desire of a subject for an object. The first experience I'm aware of of my eros was for a girl when I was in the eighth grade. And we had a song it was by Sam Cooke. It was entitled, You Send Me. I told her it was our song. And she said to me, I like that song, but what does the word infatuation mean? Sam Cooke croons, they said it was infatuation, but oh, it's lasted so long. I find myself wanting to marry you and take you home. I married that eighth grader. Infatuation and intoxication are being overwhelmed by the spirit. When one has eros, it's the desire of a subject for an object. There's nothing wrong with that as long as the object is an object. When, when the subject is a subject, we have problems. Because a subject is desiring an object, which may be a subject, therefore they are objectifying a subject, treating a person as a thing. My apologies to that eighth grader. But it was only infatuation, and oh, it's lasted. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with eros because it's something when we desire an object. Uh, uh, I had eros not uh, too many years ago, as you remember, for a tape deck. And uh, not being one of a high sensation orientation, not understanding things very well, particularly mechanical things, uh, I got some resources uh, of other people's recommendations in a consumer report and, and got the best possible tape deck that was available. And when I got the tape deck, I took all of my records and put them onto tapes. And then I taped everything that I had by category and artist and theme and song and country and western and classical and I think that tape deck is in the living room now <laughs> the problem with eros is that it initiates a relationship but it does not sustain a relationship eros is that which initiates a relationship but it won't sustain one now if most of our acquisitions are erotic passions for objects our garages are full of erotic affairs. <laughs> the remnant and residue of my erotic affairs line 
my closets and garage. Now, this is a creative kind of love where we desire another thing in order to acquire it. So the uh, logic goes this way about Eros. I desire the object until I have it, and once I have it, I no longer desire it. Now, that happens in erotic love. Um, if John has Eros for a Porsche, he will probably overthrow his entire value system in order to obtain it. When John has Eros for Marcia, he also will overthrow his entire value system in order to possess her. Now, it will initiate, but it won't sustain, because once you desire to possess and you do possess, you no longer desire to possess for you do. It's the same with oriental rugs, pieces of art, and human beings. Now, it is possible, though, through awareness to maintain eros in a relationship. Through awareness. And that is to see human beings, therefore, not as static, but as dynamic. And therefore, the object of your desire at 18 is different at 44 than she or he was at 18. Therefore, it's possible to continue to desire the new object as a subject. It takes much awareness and discipline in order to do that. But it is possible to wake up every day and still have the passionate desire. I just said it was possible. I didn't... <laughs> I didn't say it was predictable, but it can be kindled and rekindled and akindled time and time again. Now, the second kind of love is the philia, which is from which we get the word philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. <laughs> it's the desire of two subjects for the same object. We have something in common. It's a friendship. It's a brotherly love, a sisterly love, where we both like tennis, or we both like the outdoors. We both enjoy Shakespeare, or we both enjoy going to church. About those, I would be suspicious. <laughs> Somebody said to me, I don't enjoy going to church. So I responded, I don't either. <laughs> there are a lot of things I do I don't enjoy. Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't enjoy, but that's not really what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is philia and the sense of having something in common with another that bonds you. And the kind of love that comes with two subjects desiring the same object. We have something in common. Now this can be love between 
two men or two women or a man and a woman. It's a companionship, a friendship, a very important kind of love. A love that lasts as long as you have something in common. It will initiate a relationship, but it's difficult to sustain a lifelong commitment on the basis of enjoying tennis. Uh, what do you do between games? <laughs> now, most people who come to me seeking holy matrimony have come to me because they are in love, and they usually have experienced both eros, which usually initiates the relationship, and they have some philia, or they would have maintained the relationship. They are friends, but I'm fond of saying the couples to come to me that love is no excuse for marriage. You shouldn't marry everybody you love. Now, I'm really not talking about marriage so much today as I'm talking about love and the kinds of love that we experience with one another and the importance of understanding all kinds of love as a summary statement of whatever it is that Christian love might be. So for most of us, we have a kind of love that is erotic, and that is that it attracts and attaches us to others and other things. And it's important, and it should be sustained and maintained, but it also has its own limitations. It is an intoxication and an infatuation that puts one's entire value system in jeopardy because of the strength of the infatuation. The thing that's most seductive about it is one who is infatuated is intoxicated. And have you ever tried to get the car keys away from a drunk? I can drive. I know where I'm going. Philia is a second kind of love, and it is a love where we share something in common, and through that we have a relationship. It, once again, will sustain as long as you have that thing in common or as long as you don't, um, if you continue to find things in common in your relationship. But it has its own limits in terms of sustaining a relationship. The third kind of love that the Greeks spoke about was agape or agape, Eros, the desire of a subject for an object. Philia, the desire of two subjects for the same object. And agape is the desire of a subject for a subject. With this important condition, and that is that my love for you is so strong that I'm willing to give myself up for you. That's agape. Greater love hath no one than the he or she is willing to give him or herself up for another. God so loved the world that he gave himself for it. That's the word agape in Greek. In the New Testament, anytime it's referring to God's love for human beings, it is the word agape. It's the strength of the commitment that I consider my love to you to be so profound that I'm willing to give myself up for you. Now, one of the problems with agape is that human beings are incapable of it. We cannot love without condition, and that is a synonym for agape, and that is unconditional love. No conditions on the love. We're incapable of that. 
As you know, I'm willing to love you on a scale of 1 to 10. I'm willing to love you 9 if I can just get a 1 back. But I can't love you if I don't have something there to respond to me. We have trouble loving without condition as human beings. So one condition is you have to love me back. And we know now by experience that hate is not the opposite of love. Hate is a strong feeling like love. It just happens to be negative. The opposite of love is apathy. And if we don't have anything coming back to us, there's nothing for us to love. Evidently God, and I say evidently because the evidence of the reflection of human beings upon the experience of God is that God is able to love without condition. It was a parabolic teaching of Christ concerning God's love. The parable of the prodigal son being an example of the unconditional love of the father, the parent, who waits patiently and is able to continue to love the disobedient son without condition. So agape is unconditional love. So strong that I'm willing and able to love you even if you don't love me. Human beings have difficulty with this on either side, and that is to say uh, it's hard for us to let somebody love us that we don't love. That's very difficult. I know what Jesus meant when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive, but I also know how difficult it is for human beings to receive. Maybe it's equally blessed to receive as it is to give. It's hard for us human beings for somebody to love us unconditionally. It's the scandal of the faith. It's why finally at some level Updike says most ministers in their hearts are agnostic. And most of us are because at some level we don't really believe the scandal of unconditional love that is in the grace of the New Testament experience espoused by Paul based on Peter's confession and the experience with Jesus of Nazareth. And that is that you are loved without condition. Can you receive that scandalous, unconditional love? I mean, a symptom of that is what do you do when you get a Christmas card from someone you didn't send one to? I mean, we feel like that we don't deserve for somebody to love us that we haven't reciprocated. Are you able to receive unconditional love? I mean, the plaint is the same for each of us. I don't deserve it. And the answer is, that's correct. I haven't earned it. That's correct. It's an unconditional love. It's an agape. It's the desire of a subject. We have a relational theology from the time that God, God uh, first contacted Abraham. We have a relational love. It's the covenant of relationship with a promise that will always be intact. Covenant and promise. We have a relational God. Even the God that we worship, though, one God or the triune God, God in three persons, is a community in common is love. Ours is a relational theology, one of love. God is love. Now, in America, we've made love God. That's not what it says. It says God is love. Love is not God. 
You do not worship love. Now, let me give you some examples out of the Holy Scripture of this kind of love and one of the great human beings of our faith, our father David. I've been enjoying recently some free reading in Scripture. I'm more and more convinced that you cannot understand any literature without understanding the sacred story. The subtleties of the biblical revelation are so profound and they have so permeated all of Western literature that it's difficult for us to really comprehend and understand Western literature without knowing the story. I've been reading the David story recently. You want some good free reading, a good murder mystery, intrigue with characters. I think, it, I think the David stories are almost as good as Lonesome Dove. Now that's a high, that's a high praise, isn't it? That was just a little ethnocentric joke, you know? I want to refer to three of David's loves and then a fourth one is kind of a valentine present for you. The three loves I would refer to would be, you remember David, there seems to be some rather blank looks here. Okay, I'm going to do it one more time. It's in the Old Testament, it's on the left hand side of the book. The New Testament's over here. Um, for easy reference, you can look in the table of contents and look under the books of Samuel. There was the emergence of a kingship uh, in Judaism. The Jews, when they got sophisticated in their culture, looked around and said, well, wait a minute, everybody's got a king but us. We'd like to have a king too. And God said, I am king. They said, now come on, we want a real king. This is a paraphrase, but it's close. <laughs> and, they, and they said, no, let us have a king. And so he said, all right, I'm going to give you a king, but you'll be sorry. And so, as you remember, Samuel chose. See, it's just like another tradition <laughs> where you call out and they give the answers. I, I really am impressed. <laughs> Saul was the king, and Saul, as you know, evidently was a paranoiac. And when he was greatly troubled, they would get the shepherd boy to come in and play his harp for him. That was David, if you remember. And David was the one who slew Goliath. You remember now the David. And so David emerged uh, as king, and uh, he was a great threat in the kingdom to Saul. And Saul was crazy. And Saul had a son, if you remember, named Jonathan. And... Jonathan and David became very, very good friends. And Jonathan, who was Saul's son, saved David's life 
through his relationship with him and telling him always a move ahead of his crazy king father who was paranoid about David's leadership. And so Jonathan saved David's life and David had a great love for Jonathan and the best thing about scripture is it leaves the details to you to fill in. And so we can imagine this relationship between David and Jonathan as two post-adolescent males struggling with their own sexual identity and finding permission to love one another as men. And it's difficult for us men in this culture, particularly, and I suspect maybe at any time, but it's hard for us to read the Jonathan David story, particularly uh, uh, David's uh, poem about Jonathan after his death, because we're not very good about allowing men to love men and men to express love for one another. I was in a card shop yesterday, and two women were talking, and as they left, she said, oh, I just love you so much, I hope I get to see you again soon. We don't see each other enough. And a hug and a kiss, and they said, I love you. And these women with this public display of affection and affirmation of love with one another in a card shop. And how many men are able or willing to do that, to embrace or to kiss or to share? My father told me when I was in the sixth grade that men don't kiss each other. And so we didn't until I got to be an adult and demanded it back from him. It's hard for us. I can even feel some sense of nervousness in the room lifting up for me to talk this way. But it's right out of Holy Scripture and David's relationship with Jonathan that they had philia. This kind of companionship love. This relationship. On the death of Saul and Jonathan, who were killed in battle... David works his grief out, and he works his grief out, as many of us do, by writing poetry. And he writes this poem. How are the men of war fallen, fallen on the field? O Jonathan, laid low in death, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. Dear and delightful you were to me. Your love for me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. That night a man to speak of another man saying that the love between these men surpassed the love of women which we assume is the paradigm or model of love of companions it's beautiful now if you're worried about Jonathan and David and their sexual orientation I remind you of the story of Bathsheba Eros. David was out walking on the roof, as kings do. <laughs> and he saw Bathsheba taking a bath. When I was little, I thought that's why she was called Bathsheba. <laughs> Didn't you? It really means daughter of uh, somebody from Sheba. Uh, bath or bath, bat, bat Sheba, daughter of. Well, he saw her taking a bath, and he had this incredible erotic desire for her, if you remember, so much so that he had her brought to him, and he lay with her, as we say in Scripture. <laughs> and then he wanted her so badly that this is the difference, by the way, between covetousness and jealousy. Jealousy means I want what you got. 
It's pretty natural. Covetous means I want it so badly that I don't want you to have it. Now that's going one step farther. He coveted Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. It's okay, it seems to me, to want something somebody else has. But if you want it so badly that you don't want them to have it, then you're coveting. And thou shalt not do that, says one of the best ways to live. And so he sent Uriah into the battle, if you remember, into the front of the battle to get killed. And he wanted to be sure that it was done, so he instructed his own army to kill him. So Uriah was killed in order that he might have Bathsheba. That's Eros, desire of a subject for an object that's so strong that you will overthrow your entire value system in order to possess that. We're talking about King David, one of our patriarchs, one of the great human beings. It's one of the reasons I encourage you to read scripture, you feel a lot better about yourself. So we have within David these kinds of love. Eros for Bathsheba overthrew his value system. And the difficulty of that kind of love, because it initiates, but something else must come if the love is to be sustained. Looking at my clock and wanting to move quickly. The third kind of love is agape, and one of the most moving stories in all of Scripture is the beautiful story of David and Absalom. If you don't know these David stories, go read them. If you don't have a Bible, you can get them almost anywhere. There's an old joke about, do you know how Episcopalians read the Bible? First, they find one. Then they pick it up and go. <laughs> A long involved story about Absalom, who was David's son, who really turned against David and had become uh, one that required great unconditional love of a parent for a child. The word in Scripture that's used, which I think is very important, is rebellious. He became a rebellious child. And Absalom uh, was not an easy child for David to love. Now, if you haven't had that experience, then you haven't had a child. <laughs> uh, the requirement and demand upon him and and to make a long story short, if you remember, Absalom was killed in the most tragic way when his horse ran under a tree and he was caught in the limbs and was hung there. And they brought news to David about the death of Absalom. And in some ways, we would think that David would be relieved that this rebellious son had finally put his rebellion to rest. And when the word came to him, The word came to him in this way from a messenger to David about his own son. He said, the Lord has avenged you this day on all those who rebelled against you. 
And the king said to the Cushite messenger, Is all well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite answered, May all the king's enemies and all rebels who would do you harm be as that young man is. In other words, he's dead. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the roof chamber over the gate and wept, crying out as he went, O oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Agape is the desire of a subject for a subject that's so strong one subject is willing to give itself up for the other. I would rather die than have to experience your death. We want to begin to understand Christianity and Christian love. We're not just talking about that kind of erotic love, though that's important as a part of who we are, not to be denied or rejected or repressed or projected. To be accepted. It's part of the human being. And we will have eros one for another. And it puts your value system at jeopardy. And you may even overstep. But some of the great heroes of the faith have done so. We're not just talking about philia, though. The love between Jonathan and David is a kind of model of that, that love of common that we have with others that's very important. But that's not quite it. That's friendship, but that's not Christian love. It's the agape, the integrating love. That takes all of relationships and finally say that the ultimate of relationship is the willing to end it for another. God so agape the world that he gave his life for it. Greater love hath no one than to give up his life for another. And here is Jonathan of David grieving the death of his rebellious son Absalom. Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. I would that I died instead of you. Now, we are not capable of agape. We're capable of imagining it, except when it's addressed to us and we have great difficulty receiving it. But we are able to love another as God loves them, and that's finally how it is that we're able to agape. Jesus said, love one another. They'll know you're Christians by your love, not by your behavior, but by your love. And I said, we should love one another. Well, how should we love one another? And he said, as I have loved you. And so our task is to love one another, not as we love. It's all mixed up with eros and philia and my embarrassment at receiving love, my conditions that I hang on every relationship I've ever had. But I am able in moments to love you as God must love you, as you are first loved. So that's something of the nature of love on Valentine's Day. And I'll end with one other form of love that you'll have to identify for yourself and, and define and name. When I was a junior at the Virginia Seminary, which is the first year 
goes junior, middle, or senior. When I was a junior at the Virginia Seminary, in the Old Testament class, they had a question from the professor on Old Testament content. And the question was, what was the temperature of Abishag? Well, that was a great question. I thought Abishag was a, a volcano, perhaps. Or maybe it was a warm spring somewhere. But as all of you know, <laughs> the temperature of Abishag was 98.6. In the first book of Kings, it reads, King David was now a very old man, and though they wrapped clothes around him, he could not keep warm. So his household said to him, let's find a young virgin for your majesty to attend you and take care of you and let her lie in your bosom, sir, and make you warm. So they searched all over Israel for a beautiful maiden and they found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. She was a very beautiful girl. She took care of the king and waited on him day and night, but he had no intercourse with her. And so in his old age, David was given a gift of love from the community, Abishag the Shunammite. So many things about King David I envy. <laughs> it is not Bathsheba, it's not Jonathan, nor Absalom, but Abishag the Shunammite. Ha, ha, ha.